Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What's the Alternative? I'm your Tyler, you're the listener, and I'm your host, Tyler Herman, and this is the 45th episode of the show. It has been a hot minute since I have done an episode. I'm recording this one on June 5th, 2022. Uh, there has been a bit of time between episodes. It's been kind of ridiculous recently, so... Uh, you know, that's just kind of how it is. Uh, and I've only made it through maybe half of the news since last, uh, since last we, we spoke. So, um, yeah, there's still a lot of news that I'm going through and writing up notes for, but I figured if I waited until I finished all of that, then I'd A, have an episode that's like an hour and a half long, and B, it would take like another week to dig through all of that stuff and write up coherent notes. So, uh, instead of that, I decided to go ahead and just kind of cut off where I was reading and do another news episode. Um, but there's a lot to catch up on, so so we'll kind of jump into it pretty quickly here, but I just want to give a quick hats off and, and thank you to everybody who supports on Patreon. Uh, that is a thing that you can do, and I really appreciate um, those of you who do support me there. And a huge thank you to our executive producer, Chris. Thank you so much, um, and thank you all for the support, and especially in these times when it's a little bit hectic going between episodes. But there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about, so we'll jump straight into the news. As always, you can find links to all of the articles we'll talk about down in the show notes below, and let's talk about uh, some electric vehicles and all that sort of stuff. So uh, the first story is just a little bit of data that's come out. Um, electric vehicles had record sales in Q1, now that we're, well, we're in Q2 now, we're at the end of quarter two in 2022. Uh, electric vehicles had record sales in Q1. Pretty, pretty big deal. And really the interesting part of the article, there wasn't, you know, the numbers are whatever. But the really interesting thing is that there's a great chart of uh, cumulative sales over the last 10 years of electric vehicles, as well as uh, quarterly sales. And it just looks like an exponential curve. Like it looks like it's really, really ramping up. It's very, very consistent as well. You know, there have been a couple of, of dips in years and a couple of high years. We're in a high year now. But, um, it's really interesting to look at that and just kind of see how rapidly things are scaling up. And, you know, I think we're seeing this with all the manufacturing scaling and all the sales that we're seeing uh, just a few years ago. You know, I'd, I'd go a day or two or three days before I'd see an electric vehicle on the road um, here in Louisiana. And now, like literally not a day goes by when I'm out in public that I see an electric vehicle driving around. Often they're Teslas, but now I'm seeing tons of other other EVs on the road here in Louisiana as well. Um and it's been really awesome. So I think that, that all of us, if you're kind of paying attention, this will ring really true looking at the chart, but it's really nice to see that data behind it. So I definitely recommend you kind of look at that down in the show notes below. Uh, it's very, very interesting stuff. I uh, got a little bit of good news out of Chevy. Uh, we're going to talk about the Chevy Bolt in a little bit uh, in more detail, but around half of the higher risk Chevy Bolts that were in that big battery recall, which is all Chevy Bolts were in that battery recall, but half of them have been fixed already. So it looks like they kind of split the priority into um, batteries that they or vehicles with batteries that they knew were at higher risk for having issues having these um these kind of thermal runaway events that were happening um and they've gone through over half of those already and it looks like they're really kind of ramping up the recall process so things are looking pretty good and i don't really think i've heard of any I'm pretty sure i haven't heard of any um fires or anything since the recall was announced. So it seems like whatever they've been kind of doing to mitigate issues has been relatively effective. Um, but this was a huge recall. And so it's a pretty big win for them to be moving towards the other side of that, although they still got some work to do, obviously. So um, next up, we have an article that talks about whether or not chasing like the very, very fast DC fast chargers really makes sense, or if you, um, if you can just kind of go to the slower ones. So that sentence made kind of no sense. 
The long and short of it is that they're basically arguing that we have a bunch of different speeds for DC fast chargers. You have 150 kilowatts, 200 kilowatts, 350 kilowatts, whatever it is. Um, and they're kind of saying that the 350 kilowatt chargers are few and far between enough that specifically routing a trip, planning a trip around going to those versus just going to the 150 kilowatt chargers that are much more common doesn't really make sense because the amount of driving you'd have to do to go out of your way to get to these chargers is completely offset in terms of time savings of just going kind of more along your route to the 150 kilowatt chargers. Now, that's kind of the main thrust of the article. That's kind of the main point. Um, and that's kind of interesting enough on its own, and I'll talk about that a tiny bit in a second. Um, but the article is really actually focusing much more around actual charge rates that the author saw while testing the Hyundai Ioniq 5 and EV6, both of which can accept, I think, 362 kilowatt charging is kind of the number that it can accept. Um, and the actual charge rates they saw were were all over the place. They were not actually just sitting there at 350 kilowatts charging at these chargers and seeing it really consistently. Um you know, many of the people who are much more uh, kind of into electric vehicles and into the tech side of it will know that there is uh, kind of a charging curve, an actual power curve associated with with charging. You're never really sitting at that peak power the entire time. Um, and this article kind of digs a little bit into that. And I think the really interesting thing here, and the thing that I um, that really kind of crystallized in my head, uh, this article, is, is that uh, the way we talk about charging is really, really difficult. Um, I kind of think this might warrant its own episode about how we talk about EVs to the general public, but charging is incredibly complicated. Um, batteries don't like being at peak power. They don't like being charged very, very quickly. They, they get hot. Um, chargers have a lot of variation between them. It's just really, really complicated. And the fact that this article was very complicated in and of itself, I think, kind of just shows how difficult this stuff is and how difficult it is to understand for like a noob. And I think that that's a big impediment in the industry. So I definitely recommend you look at the article, especially if you are a little bit more into this type of stuff and um, and like digging into the data and the numbers. But my big takeaway from it was, geez, this is completely opaque <laughs> to people who are not deep in the industry. Um, and, you know, I even had to slow down reading it a lot to like really focus on where the numbers were and what the expectations would have been. And you just kind of understanding it is it a bit is a lot to chew. And I think that that's a really big problem that the industry just hasn't solved yet. And I don't. I don't really know what the best solution is, but um, again, I think I may I may devote an episode to that. Um, maybe just the electric vehicle episode or something. We'll talk a little bit about how we communicate this stuff because I think it's really important and I think it's a really difficult problem, um, but one of the more important ones that the industry needs to solve. So I've got a couple of rapid fire news stories that don't really deserve a huge amount of time. Uh, but first up, we have the Lucid Air, which is um, a luxury car, basically. Uh, they've increased their prices across the board by up to $15,000 for their vehicles. And that is effective June 1st, 2022. Uh, so just a few days ago as I record this. But they will honor the prices of the current reservation holders who bought before that. Um, now this puts the starting price of the Lucid Air at $88,900, which is why I don't care about the story all that much. Um, but I figure it's worth talking about because I know some people do. Uh, they do still apparently expect to hit their target of about twelve to 14,000 vehicles produced by the end of the year. So that's a bit of good news here. But again, when you're sitting in this luxury segment, I just kind of care a little bit less. Uh, Volvo has some news. Their entire 2023 lineup of vehicles will be at minimum hybrid, uh, but many of them will be plug-in hybrids and fully electric. I think that's awesome. Um, that's kind of where the industry is going anyway, but to meet fuel economy standards and that sort of stuff, you just kind of have to hybridize. Otherwise, you know, 
traditional internal combustion engines just don't do that well. Um, it's much easier to get fuel economy improvements out of hybridization. So it's not terribly surprising that somebody's doing it, but it's exciting to, to have it kind of on paper and actually happening. So I think that's really, really good news. Uh, we now also have a full review by Green Car Reports of the Genesis GV60, which is basically a luxury version of the Hyundai Ioniq 5, and it starts at $59,980, so it's a $60,000 car. Um, if you want to read that full review, you're welcome to go down in the show notes below and read through that. But again, these kind of really expensive vehicles, I'm a little bit less interested in. And speaking of, we also now have pricing information for the Cadillac Lyric. Uh, it'll start at $62,990, so $63,000. Um, now, if you all remember, GM was is going to be uh, electrifying Cadillac before, or all of their Cadillac vehicles before all of their GM vehicles become electric. That's kind of where they're focusing their electrification efforts. And the Cadillac Lyric is kind of the first vehicle in that lineup. So we finally have information about it, have a little bit more information about it. Um, and production, I think, is supposed to start pretty soon. So so that is coming down the line. Now, speaking of production coming down the line, and actually much more exciting news to me, Freightliner is slated to begin production, full production, actual production, of their eCascadia electric semi by the end of the year. Um, the semi is going to have a up to a 230-mile range, which is about 370 kilometers. And that's really close to the number that fleets, fleets have been asking for for this heavy-duty trucking segment. Um, at Act Expo, I don't remember if I mentioned it in one of those episodes or not. Uh, those episodes were kind of a fever dream. But uh, I believe that you know, there are a couple of actual fleets who are on panels discussing the needs of the industry and discussing kind of what performance they need out of electric semis to uh, fulfill their, their routes and that sort of stuff. And the number that kept coming up is if you can get to 250 miles of range... Uh, about 400 kilometers, then that really satisfies the majority of their routes. Like that really is kind of the, the magic number for unlocking a huge segment of routes for these these vehicles. Um, at least that's what those fleets are asking for today. <laughs> if they get there, who's to say that they're not going to say, oh, we really just need 270 miles of range. Like that wouldn't surprise me a huge amount. But um, this is a pretty good range. Presumably that's a fully laden range, which is nice, you know, with its full payload, or at least the majority of its payload. So pretty good news from Freightliner. I did get to see one of these E-Cascadias at Act Expo, and they're awesome. Uh, actually, um, one morning leaving the hotel, going to the actual convention center, um, we gave a ride to a guy who was on the design team. He was actually, I think, the lead engineer for the E-Cascadia. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, so... I gave a ride to the guy. He was really nice. Um, and then my coworker actually drove one of those that day later on and got to uh, get behind the wheel. And that was kind of fun. She really enjoyed that. So I've got some news that really frustrates me out of Kia and Tesla. Um, they have both stopped including level one 120 volt chargers with their electric vehicles. So uh, basically up until now, all electric vehicles sold in the U.S. have come with a 120-volt, just kind of regular wall outlet charger for your vehicles. Um, that'll charge your vehicle pretty slowly, but, you know, charging overnight, you'll get 60, 70 miles of range, something like that, if you charge it basically a full night. Um, and I think that that's kind of important, right? Uh, without these chargers, you, you're kind of relying on having either a level 2 charger at home, which is quite a bit more expensive. You know, it's going to be in a several hundred dollar range, depending on uh, installation costs. Or you're relying on public charging, which isn't always a guarantee. Or if you live in a multi-unit dwelling, you know, that relies on your landlord having charging available and that sort of stuff. So, like, that's, I just don't think that this is a great thing. Now, their claim is that usage is so low that it's not worth, it's not worth putting the charger there. Um, 
And I've also heard some people claim, I haven't heard it from the automakers themselves, that we're kind of getting to the point of, you know, most people who are buying these vehicles already have a 120 volt charger, which I think is, is absolutely asinine. Um, that is very much not the case. <laughs> like it was a big deal whenever Apple stopped including the charging brick with their phones. Um, and I still think that that's dumb, but like at least that had some sort of argument about like many people have these USB charging bricks and it's not that big of a deal. Uh, that just isn't true for electric vehicles. Uh, I also think that level one charging, this 120 volt charging is absolutely crucial as an emergency feature. Um, and it's very, very low cost to the automaker. I mean, these cables can't cost more than 50, 60 bucks to manufacture at best. Um, you can buy an aftermarket one for $80, $90. But surely it's not that big of an expense for, for the automakers. So I, I don't really just understand this decision at all. Um, maybe in five to 10 years, this will make sense uh, because we will have all these chargers kind of just floating around in the ether that people can tap into. But I really think for that, at least for the emergency um, side of things, it just doesn't make any sense not to include it. I don't think it's contributing to like e-waste in any sort of meaningful manner. Um, they last like forever. <laughs> you know, that, that's not a thing that should really fail. Uh, I just don't, I don't understand it. Uh, and I've mentioned before, I think that with my plug-in hybrid Honda Clarity, uh, I never use level two charging. Uh, I own a level two charger and I just simply didn't install it at my home because the installation cost wasn't, wasn't worth it. I didn't need it. I can get my 50 miles of range overnight charging every single night, very, very reliably. So it just wasn't an issue. Um, so I, I think that we're really undervaluing level, level one charging. And I think it's really dumb <laughs> that Kia and Tesla have stopped including these chargers with their vehicles. Um, but I'll get off my little soapbox there. I just got really frustrated when I read that news. Got a little bit more news out of Lordstown Motors. Um, they say that they will need an additional $150 million to get production rolling. Uh, this was many weeks ago now that that particular news story came out. So I know things have shifted around a little bit, but there's a lot of news has come out that Lordstown is really struggling right now financially. Um, and with that, we also have news that they have finally completed the sale of their factory to Foxconn. Uh, so we knew that this was happening, uh, but it is actually properly finished now. And Foxconn is actually going to do the, the manufacturing part of Lordstown's trucks. Um, so they have a little bit of experience in manufacturing, well, a lot of experience in manufacturing, but none in vehicle manufacturing. Um, and they're going to actually oversee the manufacturing of these electric trucks. Now, this is coming with a $100 million investment by Foxconn. Uh, and that'll be a joint venture with Lordstown Motors to engineer new EVs for quote unquote the global market. And they still claim to be on track to, um, begin production in the third quarter of 2022, which will be very impressive if we see it. Uh, I wish them the best, but, um, with the way the news has come out, uh, I'll be very interested to see that happen, but that's some good news for Lordstown Motors and kind of a, a, in a bit of a quagmire of bad news that we've gotten in recent months years now, I guess. And speaking of not terribly great news for new automakers, uh, Ford has sold more of its shares in Rivian. So they've been kind of selling their shares a little bit over time. And that brings their total investment um, uh, from, down from 12% of Rivian's value to 10% of their value. Um, so that's not great. Rivian's stock was not very happy about that. Um, but yeah, Ford is basically saying like, it was time for us to cash out a little bit on our investment um, and maybe reinvest it in their own electric vehicle manufacturing. So not terribly surprising move on Ford's side, and people are not terribly happy about how it's uh, or how that's going to affect Rivian. And then last direct electric vehicle story here before we get on to deployment is that the Rocky Mountain Institute has uh, come up with a study that basically argues that time of use charging and smart charging programs for electric vehicles can decrease the carbon impact of electric vehicles by up to 18%. 
Now, the kind of main thrust of, of this discussion is, um, you know, on one side of things, you have people arguing that if we're adding a bunch of electric load to the grid, we'll have to rely more and more on fossil fuels to make up that load, right? So they're saying that the average uh, carbon intensity kind of per kilowatt hour of electricity is going to go up because we're going to need more of these fossil fuels to, to make up for it. Um, now you can always, you can kind of easily say on the other side, well, we'll just get more renewables on the grid to do that. And maybe or maybe not. Um, who knows? But their argument is that, well, we won't really have to deal with this because you can have smart charging, uh, you know, chargers that only pull from the grid whenever electricity is really clean or really cheap. Um, and then time of use charging, where basically the grid operators will say, okay, if you charge during these periods, we'll give you a better rate because it's, you know, more renewables on the grid that are otherwise going to be curtailed. So they're saying that with these sorts of programs, you can actually reduce the carbon intensity of the electricity by up to 18% or even more as we get more electric vehicles on the road. And you can kind of be more nimble and more, um, and, and more readily take advantage of, of those kind of programs. I think that's really cool. Um, it's really neat that you can do this sort of stuff, this smart charging stuff and this time of use charging stuff. But like I've kind of argued on many different topics over, over the last year and a half of this podcast, I'm really skeptical of things like this that rely on people to, to kind of give up some level of freedom, some level of autonomy over their vehicles. Uh, for these sorts of programs. Not that I don't think it's a great idea. I think it's a really, really good idea. Um, but it introduces a lot of complexity that I don't think, or that I think at least stops us from being able to say this is going to happen and it's going to have these impacts. Uh, same sort of thing with using a bunch of electric vehicles as basically battery storage for the grid and doing load following on the grid. Now, who owns the maintenance um, the increased maintenance costs on his batteries. Who owns the wear and tear? Uh, who takes who takes um, you know kind of who takes that into account? And who pays for it? Uh, that becomes a really big complexity. Now, if you can kind of prove that the value of it to the owner is much higher than the added maintenance costs and that sort of stuff, then maybe we can see it. But I think there's just a lot of complexity in that um, that that is just kind of discounted a lot in these discussions. But Either way, I think it's really interesting to, to kind of know where this tech might be able to get us if we can kind of get there and, and iron out these difficulties. So 18% is nothing to sneeze at. That's a pretty big in, um, reduction in carbon intensity. So um, we'd love to see it. <laughs> and uh, hopefully we can kind of smooth out those kinks over the next several years as we ramp up um, our investments and deployments of electric vehicles. And speaking of deployments, that was an accidental segue there. Uh, we have a bunch of deployment. Westerville, Ohio, has deployed 16 new level 2 charges across the city, a small but but mighty little uh, deployment project. The Swedish company Volta is planning on bringing 100 electric trucks and Class 7 trucks to the U.S. to be used as a pilot for their truck-as-a-service business model, and eventually begin manufacturing these trucks in the U.S. by 2025. So we've talked a little bit about truck-as-a-service over the last several weeks, um, last couple episodes. Uh, mostly, it kind of came up during the Act Expo updates, if you haven't listened to those episodes yet. But a lot of people are kind of getting interested in this idea of of basically having these trucks owned by one parent company, maybe Volta in this case, and uh, fleets who need access to these trucks can kind of do these really short-term leases, you know, down to a week at a time to take these trucks and drive them and do the thing that they need to, and then give the truck back to the owner. And I think they're even looking down to like a day-to-day model for this which would be really really interesting uh, and it's kind of like um 
yeah, it's really it's like regular leasing, but just very very short term and very very nimble. And presumably that would provide a lot of benefit to both the the fleet who's taken advantage of it because they don't have to invest in entirely new vehicles and entirely new charging infrastructure. But it also provides benefit to the operator or the owner of the uh, trucks, I should say, because the amount that they're used, basically the duty cycle, increases quite a bit because they're always being used by somebody. So you never have this kind of stranded asset that's just sitting waiting for the next thing to do. So it's a really interesting idea. Um, and I think we've seen several companies now kind of announcing these sorts of programs. And I think I've talked about a couple of them on the show already. Um, and I'm really interested to see where this goes. Uh, I especially think it's going to be an interesting and maybe even very valuable product over the next couple of years as we start to ramp up manufacturing and we start to get used to what these trucks can do and the industry is kind of figuring it out. This allows fleets to kind of get their, their toes wet a little bit, get into the game, but not actually have to spend the millions of dollars or whatever on infrastructure and on these trucks to own them themselves. They can sort of test them out and understand what they can and can't do um, with a little bit less stake in it, which I think it might be really valuable. Now, these initial trucks, these initial 100, will be uh, Class 7 trucks, like I mentioned. So these are a little bit smaller than a semi, very, very large trucks. Um, and they will have a range of around 100 miles or 160 kilometers. Now, a small little story about Volta, um, <laughs> which I think is hilarious, is that they did have a presence at ACT Expo, the Advanced Clean Transportation Expo that I've talked about a couple times now. Um, they they were there, but they didn't have a booth. They didn't have uh, any sort of exhibiting at all. They didn't speak, as far as I'm aware. They didn't hear panels. They were just attendees. But there were a lot of people there attending, and I saw them all the time throughout the expo hall. And it was like very, um, it was very like stealth company <laughs> checking out the expo hall. It was very very interesting. And the really interesting thing is that one day they they brought a bunch of blue suede cowboy hats that said Volta Trucks on them, and just kind of randomly gave them out. And a couple of my colleagues got a couple of them, and it was just weird. Like suddenly you have these Volta cowboy hats blue suede cowboy hats just by like on top of a lot of people across the expo hall but there's no exhibit there's no vehicle <laughs> like there's no actual um kind of brick and mortar like presence of this this company on the showroom floor this is a very very strange situation but um apparently they were super nice and now they've got this interesting news coming out that we get to talk about here and my colleagues got way more engagement from people after getting those hats and more business cards than, than before that. Uh, so it, it kind of boosted engagement. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see that next year at Act Expo, a bunch of cowboy hats running around. Um, very, very strange story. Very, very strange story. So moving on to more deployment, uh, the Tratham Area Transit uh, Agency in Georgia has deployed six electric transit bus into their fleet of 62 buses. That's a pretty high percentage uh, for like a first investment in electrification. So that's awesome. The University of Virginia is getting four electric transit buses from Proterra, adding to its fleet of about 40 buses. Once again, another like 10% investment, which is great. Now, this is part of a strategy for the university to become carbon neutral by 2030 and fossil free by 2050. That was a really interesting thing to kind of contrast uh, carbon neutral by 2030 and still rely on fossil fuels all the way to 2050. I think that, that just kind of points to the scale of, of how difficult this problem is. And then Charlotte, North Carolina is piloting light pole mounted electric vehicle chargers that focus on um, collecting usage data and sharing that data. And this is through a partnership with the U.S. Department of Energy um, to kind of get these, these pilot chargers out there. So this is really interesting. Um, We've talked a little bit about this before. Some there are some UK installments of um, 
or installations of light pole mounted electric vehicle chargers. The idea is you kind of get a lot of flexibility in terms of not needing to like break concrete or, or do any of the, the kind of heavy duty installation stuff. It makes it much easier to install these chargers. Um, and you can just kind of put them on a light pole that already exists. It kind of should simplify the process and that's kind of the goal of it. Um, but they're looking at really sharing a lot of their data here because it's a Department of Energy project. And the first bit of data we've gotten out of the first charger that's installed, uh, it's being used about once a day. So usage is not terribly high. Uh, everybody in the project says that this is to be expected. This doesn't bother them. Um, but I thought that just the fact that we can see very clearly this is a once a day, once a day, um, use case is, is not a huge amount, right? Uh, hopefully we'll see that ramp up in the future. But as I talked about before, electric vehicle chargers are not terribly profitable right now or profitable at all. And I think this is just kind of another data point there. Now, they expect four more of these charges to be installed by the end of the year, and they will continue collecting data on them. So I've got some energy news for you all today. Uh, first bit is that Rivian has financed one megawatt of solar power at the Paris Solar Farm in Tennessee, which will provide electricity for Rivian's Waypoint Network in Tennessee's state parks. So remember, the Waypoint, uh, Waypoint Network is Rivian's level two charging network that will all go throughout state parks, basically across the U.S. and kind of destinations. Um, and they are trying to do all of that 100% re renewable energy. So the solar farm that they've invested in is still in construction and should begin operations by the end of 2022. And it'll produce a total of 6.75 megawatts of solar power. A little bit of news out of Boca Chica, Texas. Uh, SpaceX is expanding their f solar farm uh, by about 30%, adding around 750 kilowatts of solar power. Uh, this will help uh, power their operations when they're you know, building, building rockets and tents. So that's what SpaceX is up to, and they're doing a bunch of solar. Uh, funny enough, I guess they're not using Tesla solar panels, which doesn't surprise me at all. Um, but I know that that's something that people kind of find entertaining here. The bank OZK has completed construction of a 4.8 megawatt solar plant that will produce enough power to supply 40 of its locations as well as their headquarters. And Houston County, Texas now has 68 megawatts of additional solar power uh, that just went online. Next up, we have the city of Urbana, Illinois, which has just now installed or just now began operations of a 5.2 megawatt solar farm that is installed on an old landfill, which is really neat. And something people discuss a lot is using old landfills as kind of reclaimed space to put solar panels. Um, there are lots of complications associated with that. Landfills shift over time. They move. Um, but... You know, there's a lot of viability here, uh, and actually there's a study linked at the bottom of the article that shows that there are, I think, a couple thousand um, locations across the U.S. that are viable for solar, which is great. Um, and this is a great little installation that we can use as maybe a bit of a, a learning experience. The Minnesota Department of Commerce has opened a grant program called Solar for Schools, which will award grants of up to 95% of project costs for schools to install solar power. Uh, there is $7.5 million available through this program in Illinois, or I'm sorry, in Minnesota, which is great. Um, and each school district awarded can install up to 80 kilowatts of solar. Uh, they note in the article that this will not completely um, provide enough power to like 100% offset all operations of these schools in most situations, uh, but it'll be pretty significant. 80 kilowatts is a huge installation. And in the first round of proposals, or in this round of proposals, they got over $11 million of solicitations. So um, there's not enough money in the program to do it. And they've actually asked for more money um, from the governor to 
to, to be able to fund those projects. So they were oversubscribed, which is honestly a really good problem to have in a lot of situations. So pretty big news in Minnesota. Moving on to some wind energy stories, the U.S. Bureau of Ocean Energy Management has issued a finding of no significant impact for the Humboldt wind energy area off the coast of California, and this will allow a lease sale to move forward for the region. Uh, this is an area that has capacity for around 1.6 gigawatts of wind production, which is massive. And this is definitely just an early step towards leasing the area for development. They still have to move towards uh, auction and all that sort of stuff, but it's a very, very significant one. And then moving on, we have the company Rivercap Ventures, which plans to recycle 200 old wind turbines to make benches, planters, tables, and other outdoor equipment, uh, with production beginning in August of 2022. And they're also going to be be uh, building two more facilities in the U.S. to do this sort of recycling, which is around a $10 million investment. Now, the interesting thing that they're doing is that they're not uh, grinding down the fiberglass blades of the, the wind turbines uh, to make it into like cement and that sort of thing. Apparently, that is very, very cost-intensive and very difficult to do. So they're avoiding all of that difficulty by just cutting the blades and using their existing structural uh, properties to make the binges and all that sort of stuff that they're trying to make with it, which I think is kind of an interesting idea. Um, you know, recycling and, and just otherwise management of, of old wind turbines after their life uh, is kind of a, a big point of contention along among a lot of people who are against renewables for whatever reason, or even more reasonable people who are still uh, just a little bit skeptical about the landfill problem and having these things all taking up room in landfills. So this sort of solution is really, really nice. And then more good news about things that are often used as boogeymans against renewable energy. We have a seven-year study that found that the Block Island wind farm did not negatively impact fish habitats. Um, now, this study was funded by the wind industry, as far as I can tell, so there's a little bit of skepticism that should be prudent. But yeah, they found that there was no negative impacts on fish wildlife, uh, fish habitats from wind turbines that were installed. It seems like they had a pretty rigorous uh, process for measuring their impact on, on wildlife. Um, so it looks fairly legitimate to, to me as a total outsider and somebody who's not a, a biologist. But it's pretty pretty cool stuff. And seeing that there's no huge negative impact, I think, is really, really nice. We've seen this sort of thing before, but a seven-year study is quite a long time. Uh, and they follow the same same project over many, many years. They had cooperation from the actual fishing industry there as well to make sure that it wasn't negatively impacting them. And it all kind of seems pretty good. So love to hear it. And then the last bit of energy news here is that the U.S. federal government has announced they plan to use over $12 billion to modernize Puerto Rico's electric grid, focusing on renewable energy and resiliency. Now, this is super duper important. They get absolutely slammed with hurricanes all the time, and their electric grid uh, is not incredibly um, well suited for that sort of thing. And I think that is very, very good that the U.S. federal government is, is stepping in to try to help out in any way that they can. Uh, hopefully this shows meaningful results, <laughs> measurable uh, results in the very near term, especially with, with um, hurricane season coming through. Uh, now we're, we're, we're there and hurricanes are not great. So hopefully we see the fruits of that very, very, very soon because uh, this is timely. It's very important that we, uh, we modernize their grid and help out however we can and not leave them behind. And lastly, we've got two policy stories for you today. This first one is a little bit electric, uh, electric grid related again, but the U.S. Department of Energy has officially opened up a notice of intent for the $2.5 billion of funding for grid transmission through the infrastructure bill. Um, so this is really great. I've talked a lot, I've talked quite a bit on this podcast about the importance of transmission lines in our electric grid for the, um, the wider penetration of, of renewable energy, especially. 
and this is never more important than now. And uh, yeah, the infrastructure bill had $2.5 billion of funding included for grid transmission, and this notice of intent has opened up. So basically, this is a way for the DOE, the Department of Energy, to uh, tell the industry, hey, we're going to be doing this, we're going to open up this uh, this round of funding. Uh, here's kind of some of the details that we're going to be looking at. Here's what we're hoping for. Uh, and that gives the industry time to A, provide feedback to the Department of Energy. It's like, hey, this is a good thing. This is a bad thing. This is what we need. But it also allows the industry to uh, start planning for that funding, start actually doing some of the legwork that needs to be done to to take advantage. So this is, you know, forming the relevant partnerships saying, hey, like, I need to be talking to this person over here to get these things built or put together a project proposal it kind of allows a lot of that time, as well as like like raising capital, basically saying, hey, we're going to be chasing this money. There's a lot of money available. Um, please help foot some of the bill. There's going to, probably going to be some match required, some private match, uh, matching funds to make up you know 20% or something of the total project cost. And they're going to have to raise that capital. So this gives them time to do that, which is great. And then the last story for today is that the U.S. General Service Administration, or GSA, has issued new standards requiring lower carbon cement and asphalt to be used in all GSA projects. Uh, they're targeting a result or a resulting reduction of greenhouse gas emissions from their cement and asphalt by 20%. And that's pretty big. Concrete is a huge, huge, huge polluter in terms of carbon emissions, and it's kind of a difficult thing to solve. And there are some technologies that will, will help us get there um, in a gigantic organization like the GSA um, having this new minimum standard, I think is, is something that can move the needle, which is really quite nice. So that's all I have for you today uh, in terms of news. And uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be coming back very soon to talk more about some of the other news that I'm still not caught up on. Again, that's maybe half of the stories that I need to catch up on since we last spoke. Um, but hopefully we can get that done here fairly soon. And with that, if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at ArchdukeTyler. Um, love to, to field some questions on maybe a Q&A episode at some point in the future. I think that might be a little bit fun. And until then, uh, whenever you listen to me again, it's, geez, I'm getting so sloppy with these endings. Anyway, I'm probably going to record a, an episode about the Clean School Bus Program here right after this. Um, so if you listen to that shortly after this episode comes out, then you will have heard me again whenever I spoke to you through the podcast, um, inevitably, because what's the alternative? That's how the ending goes today. I decided. Thank you.